In a world where three pudgy history teachers discuss random aspects of history. I've got nothing. No, oh, Hatfield, we got you. Yeah, I, wait, who you calling pudgy? Yeah, man, that's kind of rude. No, I'm rude. Welcome to the History Bros Podcast, everybody. It is me, Jason Rude, also known as Corn, here in the northern part of the state of Iowa, also in the eastern part of the state of the Iowa, uh, and also known as God's Country. That's right, NASCAR. Joining me here is uh, our good friend NASCAR, Jason Hatfield, and more importantly, our better friend, uh, Dirty, also known as Brian Geldmacher. Our, our better, better friend? friend. What? <laughs> Brian's Why nice. do we start off with this kind of like, wait, wait, let's back up and review how this started off. Wait, what? Huh? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's oh, nothing. Oh, that's we'll just keep going. Just what? keep going. Are you talking do, about we'll how we got our, Are you talking about how we got our nicknames? No. What are you no, talking you about? You said our better friend when you pivoted from oh. myself to Geldmacher. Oh, what was I supposed to say? Don't be upset. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, we never really determined who was the the favorite, I guess. So that remains to be seen. No, I think it's clear now. No, 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 not no. it, not it. <clears throat> no, that's the the favorite of the bros in general. Like, who would get the most votes? The people would vote for Geldmacher, I think, mm-hmm. over me certainly. And then it would be a matter of where would Hatfield fit into the equation. Oh boy, oh boy, this wow. is this has gotten. Uh, aggressive or no, this has been passive aggressive, I think. I think that's what we can say. Yeah, sorry. That's mm. the best I got. Why why did we oh god. I... Okay, so this week this week in history. Let's uh-huh. just go ahead. <laughs> yep. Hey, uh November sixth of eighteen sixty, <laughs> Abraham Lincoln becomes the first Republican to win the White House as at a time when the Democratic Party and the country as a whole were deeply divided over an ish- the issue of slavery. The Civil War will break out a few months after Lincoln's inauguration. And if you ask me, I would say that the Civil War broke out in large part because of Lincoln's inauguration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could say that. Um, and I say that not because I don't like Lincoln. I'm a huge fan of Lincoln. He's my favorite president. Um, but because the Southerners made assumptions about, I believe, made assumptions about what he was going to do with the slavery issue, and therefore I feel it was somewhat of a preemptive strike. Sure. You disagree? Okay. No. Okay. no. But what no. about you, Hatfield? I value your, value your opinion. Oh, not mine, but... Uh, well, I do value Brian's. I just... I want... You obviously want, value Brian's more based on our <laughs> conversation earlier, so why ask me at all? Well, I want you to feel like you're part of the group still. Oh, oh well, that's God. good. I am the I am the redheaded stepchild of the history, bro. You do kind of have red hair, don't you? Um, <laughs> well... Uh, now you're now you're bashing on... Now you're bashing on my follically challenged scalp. You know no. what? Oh, no! No! <sighs> Listen, you're, on my, you're on my list now, Rude. That's you fine. You are on my list. I'm going to go ask check. ask the McCoys, my list don't go well. I'm going to go uh, check Wikipedia to see what your hair color is. There it is. Okay. And now. So, so lame. So lame. <laughs> are you saying that was a weak joke? November 4th, 1922. <laughs> Archaeologist Howard Carter unearths hidden steps down to the seated tomb of King Tutankhamun, the boy king. 
When he unseals the tomb in a few months, it will turn out to be remarkably intact. Its riches hidden for over 3,000 years. Hey, that's King Tut, isn't it? Yep. Got a condo made of stona. Yep. That's right. I was actually just going to bring that up. That is my absolute favorite SNL sketch ever done. Was it, S- was it SNL? Yeah, it was Steve Did Martin on Steve SNL. Martin? I know Steve Martin, but I didn't know he'd done him. No, it was, it was on. A, I mean, he that, was but... he was a host. He was never a character or a player, but yeah, he was. And on, what they actually and they recently just actually uh, discovered um, a whole lot of other uh, uh, sarcophagi um, buried in. Um, I think in that same uh, Valley of the Kings. I think recently, or maybe not. They 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 found a whole bunch of. Uh, uh, mummies recently. I mean, within the past couple weeks. Uh, really? I could. I could yeah. see that. Huh. Who were like, they? Do we like, know? Um. Let's see. Um. It's fine. Just you, keep talking. We, I'm. I got. I'm. I'm going to look this know, up. It's, but it's not a huge. We're not sure who deal. it was, but um, it appears they're very wrapped up in their work. <laughs> yeah. Well, Ooh. I don't think I would. Yeah. No. I don't, no? but here's the thing, Brian. I, I don't think I could go on a uh, an expedition for that type of stuff because I would miss my mummy too much. Mm-hmm. Okay, late October <laughs> of 2019 in Luxor, Egypt, colorful wooden coffins adorned with paintings and inscriptions that were recently discovered by a team of Egyptian archaeologists were opened on Saturday to reveal perfectly preserved mummies. The 30 sealed coffins... Were found by accident under a mound behind the Asasif Necropolis on the west bank of the Nile River. Mustafa Waziri, Secretary General for Egypt's Supreme Council of Antiquities, told NBC News. But who are the people? Um, I do not know. Oh. They just opened them up. They opened up the the mummies? Um, I should check their wallets. Yeah, check the wallet. There's got to be a way to. I mean, come on, DNA, dinner. I think they found one of them was uh, bird eye, uh, squiggly line. No, no, no. That was the pirate from like the the the, the uh, Artichoke Islands. What? What is? I'm I'm alluding uh, to ocher from my, your, my yeah. head hurts. My head hurts right now. Okay, so I'm it not saying right it was now. a good joke. I'm just saying that I was trying to pull my weight here, and obviously my comedic chops are not what Jason Hatfield's are. Wikipedia. Uh, okay, okay. Yeah, now I'm not even going to drop the nickel on that one. Oh, nope. fine. Nope. I, think, I got nope. you. I got you, don't, you. you don't even deserve that one. I work harder. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, mm. I... Um, because we have all these, I've actually got uh, one last one on, oh, really? on this list. So uh, when we get around to it, we can have a little discussion. But let's continue. Uh, okay. So we're skipping the next one? No, no, no. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. Uh, okay, go ahead. November 9th, 1938. Nazis attack Jews and loot and burn their businesses and synagogues in a coordinated and widespread campaign throughout Germany and Austria. The event, later known as Kristallnacht, or the Night of Broken Glass, will lead to an even greater horror, the Holocaust. And if I can just say, I think we need to do, eventually, an entire episode on the topic of the Holocaust. Um, mm-hmm. We are, at school, I'm just finishing a project with my students. In fact, they're going to start giving their speeches, to, to not tomorrow, we don't have school tomorrow, um, Thursday. 
uh, no, not Thursday, Tuesday, whatever day, whatever the day we go back to school, they're starting other speeches. And the, uh, I don't know, I find eighth graders to be absolutely morbidly fascinated with the Holocaust. So like they're unbelievably excited to do this project. Um, and they don't, they don't like the idea of having to give the speech, but they get through it. Um, but, uh, I, I think there's a lot of fascinating things we could talk about with this whole thing. The middle schoolers are, and I think it's probably because it's the first time they've been uh, exposed to that kind of slaughter. Sure. Right. And I think it's just it's it's morbidly fascinating, uh, fascinating to them because uh, every every I mean, every eighth grade year they're always like, "Are we going to talk about the Holocaust?" And it's like, "Well, no." My eighth graders grade. just heard a story this past week about um, a gentleman named Half King, and <laughs> did to a gentleman named Jamonville. And I won't tell you where they heard the story. It may or may not have been their newest favorite podcast. Just put that out there. Fair enough. <laughs> you know, my, I had some students hear that same story, and they liked it too. Mm-hmm. However, that was after we started the Holocaust Project. But the other thing is, the boy in the street. Wait, Holocaust Project? Where are you on your, your history right now? What do you, uh, we are currently with the eighth graders. We're in the Holocaust. Wow. We're just now getting to the revolution. We're just finna- right. we we go in a very linear fashion. We don't uh, and we don't. Over... <laughs> no, and, okay. and I don't well. on this one um, because of the way we want to do our projects and what we're doing. This project sets up the next project. Uh, so this is the first time kind of writing and giving speeches um, and, and working through that the oratory process. The next one. So I'm going to lose my eighth graders. I'm going to get my seventh graders back now uh, next week. And so when my, I get my eighth graders back, we move into our social injustice project. So we'll hit some, some more concepts of social studies, the, the kind of the doing social studies side of things, and rather than specific historical content er- things, mm-hmm. um, and, and which means I've got basically four weeks at, towards the end of the year where I really have to hit a lot of the, the specific whatevers. Um, but uh, the, the, the big thing about this is it gives me a chance to get the kids set up going forward and now when they come back and do the social injustice project, they'll pick topics that they're interested in, um, you know, and then we'll, we'll do a couple of case studies on social injustice things. Um, so, yeah, it's not linear at all. It's really uncomfortable, to be honest with you. But that's Do that's, you not you teach eighth graders through the entire year? You, you break it up by quarters or? Correct. Well, not by quarter, by, oh, okay. by some, uh, midterm. So but, I start out with eighth graders and then I get the seventh graders in the second half of the quarter. Um, wow. basically it's because of the way the, the, the block is set up, uh, our, we have 83 minute, three 83 minute blocks or whatever they are. Um, math and math and literacy get one full block every day. And the idea was science and social studies. We're gonna have to split the block, the, the, the third block. Well, rather than splitting it, we said, why don't we just take one group at a time for a given amount of time? And then we rotate. And it's been really, really good that way for a lot of different reasons. Hmm. Yeah, we have. Um, I have my eighth graders for the entire year, mm-hmm. and so but, we uh, we st- we start off with pre-Columbian Native American cultures, and then our work. And it's focused. The entire year or curriculum is North Carolina and U.S. history, sure. and we work our way uh, from pre-Columbian to basically twenty thousand years of North American history yeah, in exactly. a single school year. So, right. yeah. So I've got seventh and eighth grade back to back. So I have them for the equivalent of a full year essentially. Or if you go by time, I have them for two full years, whatever you want to look at it, I guess. 
Um, but I never have them both at the same time, and I don't have them like one semester then the next semester. They, it rotates back and forth. So we'll cover all the way from 1492 all the way up as far as we can get. Uh, but, you know, we, with the, the push that we've had with our project-based stuff, this is how we fit are able to fit that stuff in. So we go very Not deep on lie. specific topics. That sounds very odd. It is. But it, I would be interested in hearing more about it. Yeah, and I don't have it perfected. I'm, not, I'm going to be the first to tell you I do not have it perfected. And there's a lot of teachers out there that are going to look at me and say, well, you don't get this, you don't cover this, you don't cover that. You're right, I don't. But you know what? My kids are in some ways better prepared to do the, the tasks that they need to be able to do, even though they, they don't necessarily have all the stories. Well, really, the I mean, high school is when they kind of start really getting in depth of this. But right. um, I do... I enjoy having the eighth graders for the entire year so that I can go over the high points of history and uh, social conflicts and mm -hmm. civics and that kind of stuff. So after this is over, we're going to start talking about the, um, well, they're going to start looking at the declaration of independence this week. Mm -hmm. And then we'll start looking at, uh, the, uh, constitution and, um, using iCivics, which by the way, if you guys, um, have never, it's good stuff. use that website. It's a, it's a fascinating, it's a, yep. it's a fantastic website to use for, um, my favorite my, middle or high school levels. My favorite game is, is it constitutional? <laughs> yeah, that one. And, uh, my kids love, do I have the right? Yeah. Oh yes. Oh, yes, 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 yes. That, I think that's do the I one the I'm right? thinking of. That's the one I'm thinking yeah, of. Yeah. The, the kids love that one. Um, right. uh, November 8th, 1960, Democratic Senator John F. Kennedy beats Republican Vice President Richard Nixon <laughs> by a slim margin to become the youngest president ever elected, as well as the first Catholic to hold the office. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, following the teaches of Cathol. Okay. Got nothing. Yeah, that's... <laughs> I stole from Eddie Izzard on that one, so yeah, yeah. fair enough. Yeah, moving on. Uh, November tenth, nineteen sixty nine. Sesame Street, featuring Jim Henson's Muppets, catchy songs and animated shorts, aims to educate while entertaining young kids. I'm assuming that this is when it premiered. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, Sorry. You know Jim Henson. He died what, nineteen ninety? Yeah. You guys know? Do you guys know what Kermit said at, at Jim Henson's funeral? Oh no, 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 nope, no. <laughs> Geldmacher, do you know what what Kermit said at Jim Henson's funeral? I would almost be interested to hear. Nothing. Go ahead. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> And here I was, you know, and I was giving a pass no, right. when we were when we were doing the John F. Kennedy beats Republican vice president by a slim margin to become the youngest president. And I'm like, I was going to say, and trust me, that's not what's going to blow your mind. Mm. <laughs> Wait, what? Oh, 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 oh thanks. thanks. We were all there for that. We were there for that one. That so. Mm, mm. Ooh, oh, don't you judge me, rude. You just. <laughs> I know. I, I mean, know. What, what did Kermit the Frog say? And you're going to what judge me about this? No, uh, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got some other Muppet jokes, but we can't really tell them right now. Please don't. 
I won't. Please not. I mean, that's like asking where, uh, you know, uh, uh, who. No, don't do it. <laughs> Just don't do it. What? November 9th, it is. 1989. <laughs> East German officials bowed to pressure and lift travel restrictions to West Germany. Thousands of Berliners from both sides swarmed the wall and cheered the destruction of the 12-foot-high barrier that had separated them for over 30 years. Moving along. So, uh, what are you eating? I'm just curious. What? He wants to know like what you're eating. eating. Hmm. Is it a Snickers? I'd love a Snickers hmm. right now. <laughs> no. So, uh, is this... <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, da, 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 da. <clears throat> so, this uh, last one here, is this the one that where uh, the guy was on there, Reagan was saying, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Is that is this this? It was in response. Is a response to I can't talk. God, it was oh. the thing that made this happen, or one of the things that made this happen, right? That would yes. be Ronald Reagan. I think is the one you're talking about. That's who I meant to say. Who did I say? You, you no, said some, you right. said this guy. I don't think you said Ronald Reagan. No, I don't think you did either. Oh yeah. well, I meant to. I meant to, to say that. So um, I I suck. <laughs> Sorry. Well, well, Nancy, I guess that's just all right. That was sort of my 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 horrible Ronald Reagan. Anyway, continue, please. Well, yeah, he also said I I, I forgot to duck after he got shot. Mm. Well, it did happen. Wow. I know. Well, it did. Okay, sorry. Okay, I I was I was alive when that happened. Me too. I was barely alive when that happened. So continue with <laughs> it, this one then. Okay, November 4th, 19, or 2008. I was alive for this. In fact, I remember this one pretty well. <laughs> Barack Obama beats John McCain and makes history as the first African-American president. Obama's promise of hope and his slogan, Change We Can Believe In, seems to register with voters who give, the, give him a de- decisive victory. Yeah. Okay. That happened. Well, um, and we have uh, well, actually, there's one more that I stumbled across that I wanted to save, especially for this particular episode, uh, because oh it's from Iowa. Oh dear oh, God! Fine. Um, and it's from NPR, and this is from November eighth. Oh boy! So if you're serving a life sentence but momentarily die, and then are resuscitated, does that mean you can walk free? That's what a convicted murderer is claiming in Iowa. He says he has been in prison for four years too long. But on Wednesday, a three-judge panel of the Court of Appeals of Iowa gave that idea a firm no. The judge's opinion states that the prisoner is, quote, either alive, in which case he must remain in prison, or he is dead, in which case this appeal is moot, end quote. What? I want to also. Where is that? They also note that the inmate managed to sign his name on his motion for post-conviction relief. Therefore, they find the possibility that he is dead, quote, unlikely. (laughs) Benjamin Schreiber, 66, was convicted of first-degree murder in 1997 and was sentenced to life in prison. In March 2015, he developed large kidney stones, which caused him to develop septic poisoning. The judge's opinion states that Schreiber was rushed to a hospital after he fell unconscious in his cell. Even though he had a do-not-resuscitate order on file at the hospital, medical staff resuscitated him five times and then operated to repair his organs damaged by the kidney stones. Schreiber's brother told the hospital staff that, quote, if he is 
is in pain, you may give him something to ease the pain, but otherwise you are to let him pass, end quote, according to court records obtained by the Des Moines Register. Last year, Schreiber filed for post-conviction relief. He said he had, quote, momentarily died, end quote, according to the judge's opinion, and therefore should be immediately released. The opinion does not make clear whether Schreiber had actually been declared dead by medical staff. However, a lower court didn't buy it. Quote, the court finds this assertion unpersuasive and without merit. It's a, it's dead. Uh, yeah, I want to know <laughs> where the heck. Tell me about the, the initial. What? It just all I'm going to say is that the Iowans got it right. He's not getting out. It's, it's, an, it's an Iowa 13. That's just what I'm saying. Oh, yep. oh, 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 what was the initial? So, so, it was murder, but I want so to know what the initial court, case what, what? 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 I want to know what the initial case yeah, look is. look it up. I'm trying to. I can't find Benjamin it. Shri- Benjamin Schreiber. Yeah, I got that. They've got S C H R A I B E R sixty six was convicted of first degree murder in nineteen ninety seven and was sentenced to life in prison. I get that. You read it again? I want no, no. I I, guess I, I need to. I've got it, <laughs> but like every article talks about his appeal, nothing talks about him when he actually committed the crime. I'd like to know first off where the heck it happened. Okay, well, let me hit this hot link from the Des Moines Register. Oh. And it says a man convicted of murder was rushed from the Iowa State Penitentiary to the hospital in 2015 where his heart was restarted five times. Now that he claims the, his life sentence. That's the same one. Huh? That's the same story. It's actually, this, this, no, well, th- it is because it's the same guy. I know. I want to know what the initial charge was. <laughs> How many times does this happen in Iowa? That's what, I guess, if that's where we're going. No, 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 no. I, well, I, I want to know when. I want to know okay. where it happened. Where is, where is he from? Okay. You find that out for okay. me, then I'll give you I'm, some credence. Okay, I'm putting this right here and sharing it with you so you can take a look at it for yourself. Ooh, there it is. What? Where? And Did you Wikipedia to me? I've seen this article. Yeah, I've seen well, then this Well, what article. are you asking me for? No, I, don't, I want to know where the crime happened initially. I, all I so have was, is that he was found guilty of first degree murder in 1997. I don't know when because it doesn't say so in the article. That's my, that's what I'm Let's getting see. at. I want to know about. No, I've, I see that. I'm looking at the same NPR article. I want to know about the original case, the original murder case, where it happened, and what the the the, the story behind that is. Well, uh, that will be your homework. What, you Brian? Go home, do some. Brian, did you want something? No, we're oh, good. I thought you were saying listen. No, I, I never mind. Okay, I I'm gonna find this guy. You know what? Schreiber. I I have. You're gonna find the same article and on, on 150,000 different websites is what you're gonna find. Because trust me, I've already he looked. Was... But I have another method. So so S H S C H R E I or I B. You there? Huh? What? Hello. What? Mm-hmm. Hatfield, are you there? Can you not hear me? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah. Ah, here we I've go. I'm talking to you. I know. Okay, hang on. I okay. I found it. I went to the actual court. Oh, it was in Wapolo. It was way south, way south of here. Almost Missouri. Is that what you're saying? Uh, <laughs> yeah, not far. Not far from Missouri. 
Um, so uh, we'll put that one on on Guildmacher. Oh, okay. It's still, uh, I think if you take a look, I don't think he was sent to the Missouri State Penitentiary. The, that is true. Um, but uh, he may have, well, yeah. Okay. Doesn't matter how south you go, if it's still Iowa, it's still Iowa. That's true. <laughs> uh, all I'm going to say is that if we were to give away the southern two tiers of counties from Iowa to Missouri, it would raise the IQ of both states by 10 points. Oh, boy. <laughs> that was a good one, wasn't it? Shots fired. Right across the bow. That across the bow, wow. those things went into the bow. That that like USS Arizona. This one, that's like that, that lifted about that thing that? up. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Um, let me see if I got something for that. The USS Arizona. Oh, oh, oh! They're going to get pizza. I'm going to get to have supper soon. Yay! Is that what you're talking about? I'm not. I don't I get- know what happened. I I'm completely lost now. I I I feel like I'm well, living inside of the head of somebody with ADHD. That is absolutely <laughs> correct. Absolutely correct. So um yeah, so he murdered somebody in South Iowa and was uh Oh wait, Schreiber has been behind bars since 96 when he was charged in the death of John Dale Terry, a 39-year-old whose bludgeoned body was found near an abandoned trailer. <laughs> it's, it's Iowa. In rural agency, <laughs> Iowa. Oh, agency. That helps a little bit. That's what I was Prosecu- looking for, Hatfield. Prosecutors contended that Schreiber, then 43, had plotted with Terry's girlfriend before clubbing the man to death. And for the record, that's not the... With the wooden handle of a pickaxe. A jury found him guilty of first-degree murder, and in 1997, he was sentenced to life without parole. So let's just do a little measuring here. Yeah, it's within 30 miles of Missouri. I'm I'm sending that one south. Oh, cut it out. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. All right, fair enough. Well, okay, so we all have our our pasts, and it is what it is, and we'll, 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 we'll own it. We'll, we'll own it. But coming up after the break, we have our second contest winner, listener contest winner, uh, Mary Angela Saavedra. And uh, she is a friend of mine from Wilmington from years back. I don't think she's actually from Wilmington anymore. Well, well, she was a friend of mine from Wilmington, but she's now living in, in Philadelphia. Okay. And uh, she gets to choose what the topic is, and she's got some apparently some pretty interesting uh, family history as well that I think mm-hmm. she's going to share with us. Outstanding. Outstanding. All right. Well, let's take a quick break then, and when we come back, we'll do all that. We'll be back with more History Bros right after this. Back we are on the History Bros podcast yep. once again, uh, doing our thing uh, as Hatfield once again makes it awkward. Uh <laughs> Or, or not, I guess not. Why do you allude to things that no one has heard? That, no. <laughs> but, or, you, or do I, there's, I just and assume. You're, you're, you're like the professional broadcaster of this group. <laughs> I don't understand this at all. Just assumed that you would have done something that was awkward. Well, you know. And you know what they say about assumptions. That's oh, not the it's assume. We can't what? we can't huh? say that. We can't say that. Mm. The professional bro- yeah, nope. no, well, we can't okay. say the other part of that that you're talking about. What what happens if if you assume it makes uh, uh, well yeah. That's not a good idea. 
It's not good to assume. That is correct. Mm-hmm. Jeez. I said assumption. Sorry, NASCAR. Because it makes a, a, a umption. <laughs> so it makes a it makes it makes a palm out of shun and. Well, this is going nowhere fast, so I'm going to skip to the part where we get to our our guest. We don't worry, ladies and gentlemen. We are not professionals. All right, um, continue. <laughs> Joining us now is the winner of our second contest, Mary Angela Saavedra. Welcome to the History Bros Podcast. We're glad to have you here. Thank you. Thank you so much. I am super excited to be here. All right, so Mary Angela, uh, you and I have known each other from back in the Wilmington theatrical days. Yes. Um, where you did, uh, you did base a lot of uh, costuming. Sure did. Yeah. Yep. And um, any, uh, tell us your best costuming story from that time period. Uh, my best costuming story, I think, actually includes you. Oh boy. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, oh lord! Oh lord! Of the Christmas Carol. Bail out! out abort! Abort! <laughs> that, that production of the Christmas Carol that was done mm-hmm. like in a shanty town, basically a Hooverville. Yeah, um, yeah. We called it Boxcar Willie Christmas. Exactly. Um, <laughs> in order to get that look, I had to coat all of your costumes in that thing called um, Texas Dirt, which you yes. can buy. It's a makeup company sells a stuff called Texas Dirt, and it sticks to everything. And once you use huh. Texas Dirt, it's all over everything forever. Um, and yeah, I found Texas Dirt on things in my home months <laughs> after that show closed. <laughs> that, that's how intense that texas dirt is but um yeah that was one of my favorite shows to costume because it was like a a assembly line of people who would come by me and i would just dust them full of this nasty texas (laughs) dirt and be like on your way now (laughs) bye-bye hit the stage so that's amazing and that was was that still when they were doing it because every time they were doing it in the studio theater yep at Thaline Hall, and then they eventually moved it to the main stage. That yes. was still in the studio theater. It was in the studio theater, and that year I was also costuming the full Elizabeth, not Elizabethan, a Victorian Christmas Carol that was taking place one floor below on the main stage. So I was doing two shows at the same time. Ooh. And both of them were That's Christmas crazy. Carol. They both were. They sure were. Oh, that sounds like fantastic marketing. Yep, it was bananas. <laughs> I can only imagine. So, um. So tell us a little bit about yourself. What are you doing? Where are you living? What's yeah. going on? Uh, so I live in Philadelphia. I've been here 11 years. I love it. Um, moved here sight unseen. Never been to the city before. And I showed up wow. and loved it so much I stayed. It's the longest I've ever lived anywhere in my whole life. So, um, yeah. And why did you uh, move to Philadelphia? I took a job with the Kimmel Center. It's the Kimmel Center for the Performing Arts. I was uh, their patron services manager for many years. And then um, I decided I don't like money. uh, And I took a much less paying job (laughs) working in my community uh, because I wanted to be closer to my community. I wanted to work in my neighborhood. I wanted to work with the people who lived in my neighborhood. And so I left that job um, to work with some youth choirs for a while. And then I got this amazing job that I do now which is I'm the director of the Center on the Hill, which is a place for active adults. Um, Some people might call it a senior center, but I don't because we have a lot of people who are like my age who still come there, (laughs) but it Uh is primarily for people who are retired. Um, And I event plan for them. I I throw parties. We play games. I have movie days. Um, My job is pretty sweet. Nice. Awesome. Awesome. And on the side, I do theater. (laughs) (laughs) What uh, are you in a show right now? I am actually directing uh, my Christmas show, which is called Who's Holiday. It's a one-woman show about a grown-up Cindy Lou Who. 
Um, and she's been through a lot since the Grinch stole Christmas. It's, uh, it's good. The, the, the subtitle of the show is a holiday comedy with a twist of rhyme. And it's All pretty right. funny. Nice. So is it Cindy Lou Who and you know how they do like the Gilbert and Sullivan, you know, also, or, you know, like a, a separate title, the, uh, uh, Dr. Seuss opiates, or is it like when you're talking about that they did, she had a really, really rough time. Yeah. It's, it's a lot, oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> but it's good. It's, it's, it's a really good show. It's a very funny, funny show. Nice. Cool. Well, outstanding. Um, I, uh, we did uh, the Christmas shows are always um, in Wilmington there for a time. They were doing uh, Santa Land Diaries, which is a, a, a one man show based on the writings of uh, David Sedaris. And it was basically a revolving door of actors. They would, you know, they'd have a new actor do it every year. And that was terrifying. That was absolutely for a one man show is, I mean, especially if it's a comedy um, and especially one that's dated like that particular one was. I went to go see it the next year. A friend of mine was uh, another actor was doing it, and I actually had PTSD. I actually could not enjoy it because I was so stressed out. From, uh, from, from having done before. it before? Yeah, well, because it's, I mean, the thing is, when it's a one-person show, then if it fails... It's all you. It's maybe. basically on you. Yeah. And that's a lot of pressure for somebody. And if it succeeds, oh, yeah. then I kind of feel like it's it's there's a lot of other, you know, uh, a lot of other facets that are involved in the success. But I always felt like if it was a failure, it was my fault. Mm, sure. And uh, it was uh, that's it, true. It was it, yeah, it was. And the thing there's a couple of times where I went up on my lines oh, and really? there's no one there to help you. No one can feed you anything. No one can kind of signal you. And it's it's absolutely and the thing is the seconds that tick by while you're trying to desperately search for where you are just make it obvious mm-hmm. sure and plus the theater that they were doing it in in wilmington um it was a uh, level five uh known for uh heavy drinkers <laughs> oh good to come and watch shows and yeah that was uh well wait, what, what is this leveling system you're talking about it's the, it was the name of a um, actually so there was a a, a building uh, in downtown Wilmington that was a um, a mason building like it was the like a, a Masonic lodge oh okay. and Dennis Hopper actually had come by and was going to buy it because there was a theater up at the top because the Masons are really big in um, the, uh, theatrics and uh, ceremonies and stuff like that and he Dennis Hopper was going to buy it and turn it into like an actor studio. Wow. Um, but that fell through and he never did it. So they renovated the theater to a degree and would have uh, shows up there. And there was a company that would do a lot of kind of cutting edge uh, shows, whereas, you know, most places will do like Grease and things like that. This particular one would do, um, you know, Rocky Horror and Urine Town and, you know, things that would take a chance where, you know, for like a younger audience and whatnot, but there was a bar right outside. And so you, people would go get drinks and come back in. And, and especially if it's a one man show, sometimes you'd get heckled. <laughs> Imagine oh, that. But, um, yeah, it was, well, I mean, and the thing is, is that sometimes you're geared for it and sometimes you can take it. And sometimes you have to know, it's kind of like when you're teaching class, when you have a kid that's trying to push back either, you can try and address it to shut it down, but you also run the risk of escalating it and then losing the class. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of like a heckling in, in live theater as well. So you're saying you were so. well prepared to go into the education field. 
you you know what you laugh oh no i i don't a, laugh uh, it's it's totally it's but it, that is true that is true if there's anything i've learned from the oratory program that i'm in with fords that is absolutely true every bit of it uh, including how we approach history in, in my class now okay so nice yeah, no I, i'm actually not heckling you in this case Right. <laughs> no. So, um, but going back to our guest, now that I've, you know, now that I've made this about me. Mm, well, geez, I, would like to just, I would like to say to my lead actress, who I know is listening to this podcast right now, um, I want to let her know to ignore everything you just said about being nervous and scared of being on stage by yourself uh, during the show. <laughs> Good well, one, Hatfield. Nice. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. He knows no, that. Okay, well, to, to be, <laughs> well, to be fair, no, wait, no, to be again? fair. <laughs> He knows nope. nothing. Is that what you said? Yeah. That's, I mean, that, we've, that's we've now already known that. that now, but... <laughs> yeah, that's now like part of the lexicon. <laughs> no, no. To be fair, whoever uh, the actress is that's playing this may be much better prepared than I was. Um, I don't think I had the, uh, or the confidence just much better. to, or much better. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'd be glad to 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 say that. I'm sure she'll be fantastic. I just realized that I don't think I had what it takes to to do that kind of stuff. So she may be leaps and bounds better. So she I wish her all the breaking of legs um, as possible. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Good one, Hatfield. <laughs> so um so um before we continue into uh, what it is that you were wanting to talk about um, today for uh, since you won the competition, a competition contest. <laughs> um, oh. So tell us, you, you said you had some interesting uh, personal history uh, or uh, uh, genealogical history that you wanted to share as part of um, yeah. talking, uh, introducing yourself. Yeah. So, um, I mean, we, uh, I, I just wanted to share a little bit about my family's backstory because every time I mention it to people, they're like, oh, my God, that's really cool. And I'm like, all right, yeah, I guess it is. Um, for starters, my last name, Saavedra, I'm actually a direct descendant of Miguel Cervantes because he was actually Miguel Cervantes de Saavedra. And do you guys know who he was? He wrote uh, the uh, oh, 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 windmill. <laughs> When um, uh, yes, Don, Don Quixote, Quixote. Don yes. Quixote, yeah, yeah. Yes, I just actually bought a copy of that. I uh, am going to be reading that for the first time. I've never actually read it. Yeah, it's um, it's a really interesting read. There's of course a bunch of shows about it, Man of La Mancha, and people do takeoffs of it and, and spins on it all the time. But um, yeah, so I'm actually, I'm actually related to him. My uncle did our genealogy like ten years ago and tracked us all the way back. Which not all wow. Saavedras can say that. So it was kind of cool to be like, oh crud, we're one of the. No, we're one of them. Can actually say that. <laughs> no, when was uh when did Cervantes live? In like the 1600s. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So he was a, a pretty famous literarian of his time. Yeah. And that book, of course, is you know, people know it. You knew it. Um. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. Um. The other piece is how my family got here. Uh, I'm first generation American on my father's side. He moved uh, to America. Came to America when he was 13 years old. And um, it was really kind of an interesting story because my grandfather, my abuelo, was, um, they were Cuban, they lived in Cuba, and my grandfather was a, a diplomat, um, mostly to the Canary Islands and some of the smaller islands in the Caribbean, mm. um, handling kind of the money, a lot of trade, a lot of economic um, work he did. And so, of course, um, when the revolution happened, uh, you had to pick your side, obviously, and if you wanted right. to live, you chose to help out. Um, 
the revolutionary efforts. And while my mm. family didn't really buy into it, they were like, well, we don't want to die. And we have this big, beautiful house that we're living in. And so um, the Castro government treated him really well, um, took care of them because he knew a lot. And he had all these relationships with these different people in different countries. And they needed that. They needed that in order to mm. make their um, plate viable. And the row of homes that they lived on was called like, it's called like Diplomats Row or something. My uncle can say the official name. I can't remember. I'm sorry. But um, they lived on this nice row of homes in Havana. And one by one, families on Diplomat Row started disappearing. And my grandfather was like, yeah, because they're not useful anymore. So this is what's happening. And we're going to be next when I'm no longer useful. So they had to figure out a way to get out. And at that time, if you were a person of importance in the government, you could um, you could still visit people in Miami if you had family in Southern Florida. And um, they were hesitant to let like the whole family go, but like a person in the family could go. So they sent my uncle who was 16, they sent him to Miami to visit a relative. I think she was like an aunt um, or a cousin actually. And he gets there and creates this sort of false emergency that he communicates back to them and says that he's, oh, he's been in this accident and he's super sick and gravely ill and the whole family needs to come. They all need to come because he might die. So the government lets them go. But in order wow. to make it seem like plausible, they could only take a suitcase, like a, like a small overnight bag. They were supposed to be going for two days and then they were gonna say their goodbyes to him and he might die or he might come back with them, but like that's what's happening. So two days worth of clothes you can take. And so they packed everything that they could in these little tiny bags and they went. And of course they never came back. And wow. what was interesting was the people who moved into their house right after them knew them and knew their family in Florida. And for the next 30 years, those people who lived in their house mailed one photo at a time through letters for 30 years until my grandmother had amassed just enough pictures of their history in, in Cuba to make one small photo album for each of her three children. So we still have some history from then, which is, I think, just genuinely fascinating because yeah. otherwise, how would I know <laughs> what it was like, you know, for them to live there? And the American government, of course, loved my grandfather because of who he was and what he knew and everything. And so um, he, you know, was easily picked up and folded into a job and they gave him a home and, and he was well settled um, in the United States government, which is uh, how he worked till he retired um, and I'm pretty sure he was like in his late 60s when he finally retired so yeah it was kind of amazing because what are the odds right like usually you do that and you've left your whole life behind and um, yeah they got well what was the uh, what was the rationale behind getting rid of people that they didn't find that were going to be uh, of value I think my uncle thinks that most likely they were fairly vocal about how displeased they might have been with the way things were going. Because if you remember in a communist government, you, you're assigned a job, right? And so what right, most right. likely happened to these people was they were no longer useful in the role they had and they were probably would have been reassigned something else. Like you're now gonna do this. Okay, this is what you did do for, for the Cuban government, but now you're, now you're not. Now we're gonna assign you and say, you and your family are gonna go and do this. And he thinks they probably weren't um, too happy with that and they may have been overly vocal. They may have mm. um, been suspected. I know that my uncle's mentioned how paranoid Castro used to be. Um, and I mean, for a long time was, um, and it may, have, it may have just been suspicion. Like 
because he didn't want anybody who might rock the boat, right? You don't want anybody. He, it was a huge ordeal to overtake the government and to have this revolution. And then, you know, you wouldn't want any weak links. You wouldn't want anybody left. You want to, might... you want to maintain control of the situation. Yeah. Too. yeah. So that's um, as far as well, I know. Well, I'm curious based on that history, um, how do you feel about the, uh, I guess, the younger generations um, wearing the the Che Guevara uh, pictures and T-shirts and that kind of stuff? Do you have any sort of reaction to that or is that? Uh... I do. Not so much for those reasons. I mean, I think it's a lot of I I get it and I get the sentiment that they're trying to make or the statement they're trying to make with it. But I also right. understand that they don't understand the whole picture. Um, and, and it's, it's a little piece of the story that they know. And that's why he's become that symbol. But then I'm like, Ooh, if you looked at that whole picture, you might <laughs> realize sort of what all that entailed and what that right. was. Um, I saw a play once, uh, in Chicago actually called a park in our house, which was about a family in Cuba who stayed in Cuba and how they were all artists and they were repurposed into factories and into warehouses and into jobs that made them like just suck the life out of them. And mm -hmm. It was so cool for me to see because I've often wondered. My father was an actor. He was a performer. My grandmother was a piano singer, a lounge singer, and played piano in Cuba. And I wondered if they had stayed, like, what would they have been reassigned to do? My dad, it would have killed him to not be able to perform. And my grandmother, I can only imagine. So, yeah, it was very interesting to see a story told from that perspective. Like, well, yeah, <laughs> that, that is how the communist government works, right? It's like, what can you do for the state? Oh, sure. Okay. So, but yeah, so that's, nice. that's, that's my story. That's mine. There's, um, um, a little story kind of about, um, there's a, a Christmas a few years ago before my wife and I got married. Um, there was a Christmas party that we were going to in uh, Durham and it, it fell apart because there was a huge crowd that was there at this, you know, that, and, uh, space had not been reserved. I guess they thought that, you know, at this big event that was happening in Durham, that they didn't make, need to make reservations for a large group that we could just come in and get some seats and it didn't work out that way. So we were looking around for a place to eat and there was a Cuban restaurant that was around the corner that we, you know, seen, but never tried. And so we're like, okay, well let's, let's go try this Cuban restaurant. And they had televisions like black and white televisions that were up all around that were showing kind of the footage of Che Guevara and, you know, interviews and stuff like that, that he was, no sound whatsoever, but then, and it was on a loop. So it was probably about like a five minute um, clip or whatnot. And they would also show his bullet riddled body being on display on the TVs as well. And so I'm sitting here, you know, we're trying to eat, you know, chips and salsa. Meanwhile, there's this, you know, corpse that keeps being flashed up on these screens around us. And it was like, it was the most bizarre thing. I'm kind of like, I don't know if you really thought this one out too well. But, uh, <laughs> Apparently. Yeah. But the, the food was good. The food was good. So can't, um, yeah. just didn't watch TV quite as much while we were eating. <laughs> I bet not. The antithesis of the sports bar, I guess. But um, <laughs> yeah. Well, so you um, entered our uh, listener contest. Um, you got, um, there were, I think, four or five people that, that entered. Your name was drawn. And I'm curious, um, this is the second contest, that, uh, the, the second time that you entered. Uh, why, why did you want to be on the, uh, the podcast? 
because uh, I mean, I'm a big fan. I love listening to you guys. I'm also a huge history nerd. I'm not going to lie. Um, my whole family, we're big on it. My mom works for James and Rose Highland. My sister is an archaeologist at Monticello. Um, you know, I've spent a lot of time just, you know, neck deep as a theater person. Like, that's what we do, right? We're trying to recreate little pieces of, you know, moments in time and, sure. and history is very attached to that. Um, so I just really wanted to be a guest because I was like, oh, I would love to sit down with you guys and talk about some history because um, seriously, and I, I mean this in all honesty, if you guys had been my history teacher when I was in school, I would have definitely not slept through class. <laughs> I hated history class so much when I was a kid, but it's because my teachers were so robotic. And like every time I listen to you guys, like I guess I'm always thinking to myself, dang, where were these guys when I was in school? Like my history teacher was awful. These guys are great. So. I can't imagine the three of us trying to teach a class at the same time. Oh especially. my okay, maybe not God. That. Wow. Yeah. Uh, well, it was the same thing. I've actually told my students kind of the same thing about how the only thing that I hated less than math when I was in school was social studies. <laughs> and middle school especially. I hated middle school with a passion. And now here I am teaching social studies in middle school. So middle school, you know, right. Mm -hmm. Beat that with a stick. So let's go back here a second. Mary, uh, Mary Angela, you said you've got a sister that works in archaeology at Monticello. Yes. Uh-oh. Have, have I met her by chance? I mean, I don't know. Her name is Beth Sawyer. She's one of the head um, people uh, in the archaeology lab. Yeah, I think I met her. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm I met pretty her. sure you probably have. <laughs> so I was out there, yeah, last summer. Was it last summer? No, two summers ago. And uh, we went out to one of the archaeological sites. That was one of the deals, and I'm pretty sure that's who that was. So, all mm -hmm. right, well, there you go. Um, How long has it. she been uh, working uh, archaeology there? 13 years. Wow, right, right. She graduated from William and Mary, and she went straight into that job. And she must really dig that. Ha! <laughs> uh, hat. Oh, hang on. Wait, 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 wait. Oh boy. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. Sorry. It is. Sorry. I was Finally, not Rude's ready. figured out how to appropriately use these. <laughs> oh come on. <laughs> so um. Okay. Well. Awesome. So um. That's uh. That's have. I guess you've never had any opportunities or I guess desire to, to go back to Cuba to kind of visit. Um, I do. I have a strong one. And when, when they opened it up and Southwest started going there, I was going to go with a friend of mine, but I decided I wanted to go with my uncle because he would know, like he would know what to show me. Does that make sense? Sure. Like, cause I, I mean, I wouldn't know. I'd see things and be like, okay, I don't know what I'm looking at. Um, and he was considering it, but for reasons obvious, he just wasn't sure he wanted to see what had happened to the place he grew up. Mm. Oh, sure. So um, he was kind of on the fence about it, and then now we can't go. So I was hoping that maybe he's turned 70 this coming year, and I was – or maybe he just did. Anyway, he was going to have a major birthday, and I was hoping we'd go together kind of as that. Like, I'd buy the tickets, and we'd go and just spend, like, two nights and see. So I, I do have a strong desire to go. Um, in an odd situation of random happenstance i actually spent two and a half years living in gitmo guantanamo mm. bay cuba when yep. i was a kid mm -hmm. oh so really yeah i've uh, you, my, you, my, you you were arrested as an enemy combatant definitely no <laughs> <laughs> i was waiting my for step, it <laughs> my stepfather was uh stationed there when i was a kid when i was uh, okay. seven eight and nine wow. and uh so i've i've spent time in cuba and so i know you know what the island is like but of course guantanamo is one end and Havana is opposite end of the island. So, mm -hmm. um, I would very much, 
uh, love to go back, but it might also be a little heartbreaking, especially if it's not quite the place he remembers. Sure. sure. Yeah. That would be, you would definitely, uh, it'd be a gamble yeah. as to what mm-hmm. that outcome would be, but yeah. that would be very powerful. Powerful. It's still on my yeah. list. It's still something I have to do. Sure. Okay. Well, um, thanks for sharing that. Um, <laughs> and uh, what we're, uh, since you got to choose what we were going to be talking about in this particular episode, what was it that you were wanting to discuss? I want to talk about Amelia Earhart. Amelia oh, Earhart. Yes. Not to be confused um, with Amelia Bedelia. Very <laughs> different. <not. laughs> So, um, well, tell us a little bit about uh, the history of, uh, like, a brief kind of background of Amelia Earhart. Yeah, so what most people know, obviously, is that, um, you know, she was a pilot, and uh, she broke all these records or attempted to break some records um, that she didn't actually break, but gave it a fighting chance. Um, But the big part was that she was female, and there were not a lot of female pilots in her day. Um, In fact, when she started being interested in aviation, it was like right on the cusp of women getting the boat. (laughs) So it was like, oh, okay, this is happening. Um, She is credited with the first female to fly across the Atlantic. Uh, Something really interesting about that is that she actually didn't pilot that plane. It was in 1928 and she did fly across the Atlantic, but she was flown by a man. (laughs) She just rode. And now there's a plaque to her over in Wales that says, this is where Amelia Earhart landed, the first woman to fly across the Atlantic Ocean. And it was like, yeah, but she didn't. Well, technically, that's not a lie. It's not. She didn't pilot it, but she did fly. So I guess it's uh... a... Did she fly? She wasn't flapping arms. (laughs) Exactly. (sighs) Sorry. (laughs) You know, I went for Hatfield's brand of humor, and it didn't work. I apologize. It's the delivery. You need to have the classically trained theatrical background oh, that I have for the dad jokes. Got it. Oh. You're the jerk now. <laughs> no judgment. Oh my lord. So, um, so <laughs> what would be, uh, so what would you say your interest then? Uh, why, why do you want to discuss uh, Amelia Earhart? Is it because it was uh, she was uh, a woman that kind of broke barriers and things like that. Yeah, that she did, you know, people said she couldn't, and she was like, oh, really? Um, Let me show you how I can. And she did. She did a lot of things that people, you know, dangerous things. People were like, oh, women shouldn't be, you know, taking such risks, and they shouldn't be going out on a limb like that. And and she was just like, oh, really? Why not? Men are doing it all the time. Why can't, why can't I? And so she did. And it was what was really great, uh, I think, about her, and why I think, you know, people still talk about her and why she's relevant in that way. Um, She was definitely a feminist, if you want to use that word, um, before it was kind of coined, if you want to say, Um, Mm -hmm. which I think was really interesting as well, because I don't think she knew kind of what trail she was trying to blaze. She just wanted to do what she wanted to do. And then this all sort of happened behind her and people were like, oh, she can, we can, that kind of thing. Um, And I read somewhere that somebody said she's their fam- favorite missing person. And I'm like, yes, oh. that's <laughs> it. <laughs> like, that's it. We don't know kind of what happened to her. And it was, you know, such a risky thing she tried to do. And then it sort of ended without closure. And, you know, when somebody that you feel very attached to or close to um, dies with no closure, you don't get closure. You don't know why it's, that's just this weird open thing where everybody's like, we need to, we need to, find out why we want this closure and there is zero closure for a lot of people 
surrounding um, her disappearance. So it's always fascinated me. Um, and my mother has gotten very into it. Uh, it's fascinated her and we've spent countless hours talking about it. Um, so I'm, I'm just very intrigued by the whole situation and I wanted to, to come and talk about it and, and share some things you may or may not know. Well, they had actually, there were some things that came out, I'm wanting to say within the past two years mm -hmm. uh, to suggest that she may have been a prisoner of war. That's one Is of the theories. Correct? Yeah, one <laughs> of the theories they had, uh, there was a, uh, some pictures that came up um, of her, or the, uh, the, at least who they believe to be her, um, with... I'm wondering, was it Japanese mm -hmm. ships in the in the background? So there's um, I just saw that picture. Like literally, just actually, saw that picture. Yeah, I'm mm -hmm. actually looking at it right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's uh, yeah. So so um, okay. So give us the so okay. So give us the rundown. Okay. Tell us about um the the disappearance, the you know the the circumstances involving that. Absolutely. Okay. So there were a couple of factors that led up to this disappearance. Um, some things that sort of stack the deck against her, if you will. Um, like, and my mother calls it like uh, human arrogance. Like you're just like, oh, I don't need to do this because this will happen and it'll be fine. Um, and she said these things kept happening to her and it, like she didn't take heed. She was just like, I'm still doing this. And the first one was that she'd had an accident in California where her um, landing gear had like popped off the plane and it, it damaged it a lot. It was like a test run. Mm -hmm. and she landed and it, it broke. It was a thing that happened to electors sometimes. And so she had to delay the trip in order to fix that. And that changed the weather across the oceans. And they were like, well, now instead of flying from California out over the Pacific as the first leg of your trip, you're going to have to fly the other direction around the world and end flying over the Pacific at a different time of year when the weather's going to be different and it's not going to be great. And she was like, that's fine. I'm doing it because I'm not putting this off. They were like, you should just wait until next year and go at the time you selected and you'll do this again next year. And she's like, no, someone will beat me to it. I want to do this. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm making this happen. So she did it. Um, the other thing was that her navigator, um, Fred uh, Noonan, yep. uh, he was like the best in the world at the time, which is awesome. But the thing about navigation back in those days is, you know, there's no computer, right? It's all math and scales that you have to point at the sky in order to get your calculations. So, you know, we're, we're talking about you know, pencils and paper and like we mm -hmm. need stars in order to navigate. And because she went at a different time of year, it just so happened that when she took off across the Pacific, it was overcast. So there were no stars. Sure. So mm. it's like, how do you navigate if you can't? see so it's kind of like you know, literally shooting in the dark um the other thing was she didn't actually take the time to learn how to use her radio to the fullest okay. so for the entire trip there were people who she would be communicating with who could hear her but she could uh or could hear her communicate but she could never hear them and re like respond to them because she mm. didn't know how to use the radio fullest because she was like, oh, it'll be fine. <laughs> like I, I know enough was basically the concept. And then the last thing mistake she made before she left was that on the last leg of the trip, because the Pacific is so big, she wanted to be able to take more gas in the plane. And so she ditched all of her survival gear in order to uh, take more right. gas. 
because she was like, I'm just going from this island to this island, but I, I want to be sure I have enough gas to do that. And you know what? I'm not going to need this survival gear. Just like, you know, the Titanic didn't need all those lifeboats. Uh, I'm just going to toss it out. We don't need it. Um, so those things really like kind of, you know, were, were mistakes that could have easily changed the course of the way these things went. Um, that being said, there are some theories as to what happened on July 2nd, 1937, when she did not make it to Howland Island. Um, mm -hmm. She was flying across the Pacific on her way to Honolulu and in between um, Lay, where she left and Honolulu is Howland Island. And that's the target she was trying to hit with a navigator who couldn't see any stars, hoping that they were on the right track in order to hit the island. And she was communicating, trying to say like, you know where she was, but she kept saying, I can't, can't see you. So when they thought they had reached where Howland should be, she said that she turned to, instead of going, I am bad with longitude and latitude. It's a latitude that goes around the world and longitude that goes up and down. So she turned, Correct. she was flying on a latitude line and they, she turned to go on a longitude line up north and south so that she could cross zigzag back and forth to try and catch the island in there mm -hmm. and obviously didn't make it. Um, so she disappeared. There are wow. several theories as to uh, what happened. And Jason just mentioned one. Um, there's the Japanese capture theory. And that is because of that photo that you were talking about seeing. And um, that photo was actually, I think recently, or not recently, but like within the last year or so, they talked about how they dated, they found that photo published in a book that was published in 1935, which was two years before she disappeared. So mm. that may very well be her, but it's definitely not her after she disappeared. Mm. So gotcha. that one's been yeah, discredited. Another one I found really interesting was that she was a, she became a spy for FDR, like went deep undercover. Oh. That was one. And I was like, really? I don't know if you could be as famous as she was. Right. And then all of a sudden I'm going to be undercover. No one's maybe they gave her like a little mustache right. <laughs> <laughs> or she wore glasses. Cause that always seemed to work for Superman. But I just thought that really funny where I was like, okay, yeah, um, of all well, how things, old how old was she when all this happened? Um, she would have been 39. 39, 39. okay. Yeah, not quite 40. Um, another one was uh, that she had become, so, and I don't know, maybe you can tell me, Jason, what this is, but I don't know who Tokyo Rose was, but I think it was, she was a spokesperson, like a propaganda. She was a yeah, yeah. propaganda broadcaster. Yes. Right, so... <laughs> And there were people who said she had become her and like, cause they recognized her voice on one of the broadcasts. And I was like, but, but wasn't Tokyo Rose, uh, an anti, uh, it was anti-American propaganda. Correct. Mm -hmm. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it tied, it tied in with the, like she'd been captured and was being forced to do this. Prisoner of war. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was, so it was part of that one. My personal favorite was the assuming another identity. Um, <laughs> in 2006, actually, National Geographic aired an episode uh, about um, Undiscovered History series about how she survived the flight and moved to New Jersey, changed her name, remarried, and became someone else. I think her name was like Irene Craigmile Bolem. And I'm like, yeah, that makes no sense whatsoever. But sure, <laughs> like, if you survive flying around the world, why would you not take credit? And most of all, why would right. you move to New Jersey? <laughs> yeah wow sorry <laughs> um so no, no it's fine 
<laughs> but that leaves me to the one that I consider um, one of the most like probable theories. So oh, let me, sorry, back up one second. The one that everybody thinks happened was obviously she flew into the ocean, crashed and disappeared. That's it. Right. Crashed and sink. Nobody knows the bottom of the ocean. We'll never find out. The one theory that has the like a high likelihood of being most probable of all the theories is that she landed on an island and died as a castaway. And that island, they think, is an island um, that was called Garner Island at the time, but is now called Nicomaroro. And it's on that longitudinal line that she was flying up and down trying to find Howland. Right. Um, the island lives on uh, is on that line. And what's right. interesting about that island is that it kind of, when you look at it from Google Earth, like I, I'm kind of a Google Earth freak. I spend a lot of time on Google Earth. And it really does look like a runway, like almost. It's a coral reef that um, is long and you could easily sort of crash land on it. And then there's actual green on the one side of the atoll, which doesn't get like flooded. Oh. Mm -hmm. mm. So um, they think that that may be what happened. And there's a company or a, a group, I should say, not a company called Tiger, yep. which is spelled T-I-G-H-A-R. And they have been researching this since 1988, like a really long time. And they have taken um, all kinds of expeditions out there and uncovered a lot of things. And for everything they uncover, there's always someone who's like, well, this could also be this. And it's true. So they can't definitively say, yes, for sure, this is what happened because yes, this could also be this other thing. But mm -hmm. it's a lot of coincidences if, yeah. if it's not true. And now, this that's is what the, I find so fascinating. Is that the island where they found this the, is the, the bones that measured out, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Yep. Sorry, this I didn't is mean the, to um, This is the one that's attached to the guy who found the Titanic, right? Yes. Okay. So oh, Robert Ballard? He just recent, yes. Robert Ballard just finished um, a really long, uh, it was like a couple months, that he was out there um, with his like deep dive machines and all that stuff trying to find it um what i found really interesting was the way the island is shaped is it it drops off like it it's you know sticks up above the water and then all of a sudden it goes out like you know 100 feet and then just drops off deep super deep and i'm right. like you're looking for an aluminum plane we're not talking about something made of iron that would sink to the bottom and go it's a plane so if it got washed over right there are definite currents that mm -hmm. travel through deep water. Oh yeah. And over time where I was just like, I don't know why you think you're going to find this just like, Oh, we just tumble down the side of this Island. And like now it's, <laughs> you know, down there. No, that's, that's not how aluminum works at all. If this were a ship, absolutely. But right. like, even, well, even the Titanic traveled, I mean, they, they found that a mile apart from each other. Right. You know? Right. So, I mean, here's my, so I, I did watch a video or I've, I've, I've Back in the day, I did a lot of research, and it's been a little while. But I know that Tiger found a tire in the shallows off of Nikamaruru. Mm -hmm. And from what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong here, they were looking for a serial number, and they either couldn't find it or it came back wrong. What was? What was? Do you remember what happened there? Yeah. So that's that's definitely one of them. It, it, it's it was it didn't quite fit. But the thing is, is that you can't. Um, for sure guarantee that she didn't switch out. You know what I mean? Like, right, so, right, yeah. And 
the big thing that they found was this patch, right? So there's a there was a patch where she covered one of the windows with an aluminum patch. Mm-hmm. And they they found that patch and they had it analyzed and they determined that where the rivets were, that's where you would put it in order to cover a window on an Electra. Okay. And so they were like, this has to be that patch. But when they, again, did the testing and got the serial numbers and things for it, they realized that it was from a different kind of plane. And they said what kind of plane it was from. Mm-hmm. And then I thought to myself, well, she wouldn't have replaced it with aluminum for an Electra or from an Electra, she probably would have replaced it with scrap aluminum, right? right? right. <laughs> so of course it would be from another plane because right. why not? But they're using that. They're using that it's not from an elect- Electra to say, well, this isn't this isn't her. But it's like, this is weird. This is the per- right size for the patch that would have been on it. It's got the rivets in the right place. Like, how can we say that's not it? Like, Well, and I, I get what you're saying. Um, you know, and and that's what's so difficult though is is people are looking for a smoking gun. Yep. And, and that's the problem is yes, it's it's really good circumstantial evidence, but can you get so to speak get the conviction with it is the question. Yep. And so I, I see what you're saying. I mean, um, between that and like we said, the landing gear that was found there and the bones that were found there that measure out to be the right length. Uh, I believe it was the femurs they were measuring mainly. Um, you know, there's, there's some pretty good circumstantial evidence, uh, dare I say forensic evidence, but it's not the smoking gun. And that's, that's the problem is no one ever wants to call something without that. Yep. There it is. That's her skull, yep. you know? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Well, um, they are DNA testing the skull um, good. and some of the other bones. So they, they should know, um, relatively soon, uh, if, if at all possible, which that will really, I think that's going to change the face of this investigation based on what comes sure. back from that yeah. because if it's not at all, or if it's, you know, it, I guess my great fear is that it's going to come back inconclusive and that doesn't, that doesn't tell us anything, anything either. Right. Right. <laughs> it's like, well then, okay, we're still uh, doing this, but um, yeah, there's, there's also some other interesting things not beyond what they found on the Island, just some things around that time that happened, including her radio distress calls that were picked up mm-hmm. for like a day after she um, disappeared, they were, you know, still, getting these, these signals and these calls. And when they tracked the times of those signals, it coincided with low tide mm-hmm. on Nicomaroro, which would have been the only time she could have charged the battery to get the radio to work by sure. having the propellers go right. at low tide. Sure. So that was an interesting factor. Um, well, wait, what do you mean having the p- propellers go? Because it would have been partially submerged or no, cause correct. You got to run, run. Yeah. You got to run the engines and she probably landed in shallow water. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So low tide would have been the only time she could have um, transmitted. And, you know, they had boats going there, but but they didn't actually go to that island. They flew over it and they were like, we don't see anything. So, like, moving on. And, I mean, it is obviously it's the Pacific and there's a lot of little tiny islands. And there's a lot of, you know, especially in that area. I, I get it. I mean, I couldn't imagine having to be a person on that, you know, working on that search team and being like, I've got to look. For a needle in a haystack in a giant giant ocean but you know it's it's one of those things where it there were just a lot of things that could have been done that kind of weren't done but then now like you said we're, we're really looking for that smoking gun and we may never find it right right, find right. It. and the the limitations of uh technology in comparison to what we have now i mean like we had that uh that one plane crash was it in thailand or whatever and they they had a difficult time trying to find the remnants of that plane for a very, very long time, even though it was sending out distress signals or 
that kind of thing. But we're talking back in the 30s. I mean, you go exploring, there's a possibility that that's, you know, you get lost or you, you know, crash or something like that. There's, I mean, there's a strong chance that you, you're done. Mm -hmm. And so the, the guts that, you know, it takes to kind of venture out to, to do one of those things at that particular point. I mean, there was, I think, I think a lot of people may not, I think a lot of people may take for granted, um, I mean, just how dangerous or not take into consideration just how dangerous this kind of thing was, um, at that particular time. Yeah. And that's kind of one of the reasons why, I mean, I, I think she was such a pioneer and seemed so very fearless is because I'm sure she thought of all those things, but was also like, I can do this. And I'm like, Oh, props to you. That's great. <laughs> For like, I, I wouldn't do that. I'd be like, uh, maybe this right. is not a great idea, <laughs> but you know, she was like, I can, I got this. I'm doing it. I'm like, yeah, you do go ahead. And then it's like, Oh, I'm so sorry that this happened. I mean, for me, I'd like to believe that it was a crash and sink situation because that's a much faster way to go, mm -hmm. if you will, than right. being like, I'm, I crashed on this island and I'm trying to call for help and no one's coming. Right. Like that would be Waiting a better way. Yeah, being like, this is kind of awful. But, you know, the truth is she was really smart and I just can't imagine her flying to run out of gas and ditching the plane. I think she would have just been like, there's a place I can land. I'm landing. I'm, I'm doing this because that's my best shot at this moment. Um, I just don't think she would, would ditch. And she had a lot of gas like in the plane. Right. So getting, getting 250 miles away from her target wouldn't be that hard at that time. So. No, uh, certainly not. And, and, and this is the other thing I, uh, so a couple of things. One, she had Manning. I can't think of his first name. Was the radio operator that had been working with him, with uh, her and, and Fred Noonan, and he said no more. He was one of the best in the world, and uh, neither Noonan or Earhart were outstanding with radio um, communications. I mean, they could do it obviously because there there is communication. But I mean, as far as manipulating that those instruments to help them, even navigationally, which could have been done. Um, cause, uh, the Itasca, the USS Co or the U S coast guard, guard cutter, uh, Itasca was sitting at, uh, Howland Island, um, and could have sent out a beam that they could attract and whatnot, but if they don't know how to, to do that, not to mention the fact that there could have been damage to the, the, the radio, uh, stuff. But the other thing about Noonan is as good as he was, he crossed the international date line and that could actually, if he didn't know it would throw things off by one degree, which is about 60 miles. So I could see if, you know, if it got dark on them, if it got, uh, you know, any kind of cloud cover, like you said, 60 miles, even up from up in the air is a, a long ways to be off, especially if, uh, you know, you could barely see the island if you're on target. Now all of a sudden you're, you're 60 miles farther away. You're really not going to see it at that point. Yeah, definitely. Um, and that's, that's again that whole risk factor where it's like we're <laughs> this is this is how we do things yeah so, good luck uh, why you just you'd think that she could have just pulled up google maps and it would have been okay <laughs> you know i yeah. uh, i don't know <laughs> solve well, it all <laughs> well um if if someone were you know if they're listening to this podcast and they're like you know this sounds really interesting is there uh is there a a good book that you could recommend that would kind of get them at least a really good story of it. And I'm also curious, um, is there a good, like, for example, I think my uh, wife and I were visiting her parents um, 
a few months ago. And on TV was, I guess, the film Amelia that came out in 2009 mm-hmm. with, um, what was her name? Hilary Swank. And is there, would you say, okay, so with your fascination, like, for example, you know, I like Japanese history along with American history. So there are certain movies that I think, yes, this is where you need to go. And no, these are horrible. Um, what would be a good book and what could possibly be like a, you know, a decent movie that people could watch to, to get some information about that? Yeah. So I, I don't know much about books and movies because um, I am really into, I watch a lot of TV, um, but I would tell you that honestly, there are so many different documentaries between the history channel and the national geographic channel that, that pose all all the theories on all the spectrums. And what's great about them is they all tell her history. So they all Mm. start from the very beginning and layer it all in. And I've found everyone, even the one that says she moved to Jersey, uh, very interesting (laughs) to watch because I was like, wow, this is, it's thorough because you're giving me, you know, and and that backstory is all repeated. So I feel like that's, you know, that's what we're clear on, right? Boom, we know this, we know this, we know this. And then it gets into the like, what don't we know? And every one has a, has a slightly different take and a slightly different way of, of presenting things, um, which I think is really great. And the rabbit hole is super deep on the Tiger website. Now, Tiger, of course, is just pr- like promoting their findings, right? So it's just that they're, they're not so like keen on, you know, when somebody discounts it, putting that information up there. So then you have to kind of buffer that against the other sites which are like and maybe this was this other thing not this but um you can get lost for days i mean honestly just doing you know the research to come on here last night it was like one o'clock in the morning and my husband was like you have to come to bed (laughs) (laughs) come on it is you've got to this is you've been up forever and i'm like i know i've fallen down this rabbit hole and i can't get back um (laughs) but it's great and i would recommend that i I don't remember the Hillary Swank movie very well. I do know that I saw it. I just don't remember. It felt, for me, it felt kind of like a, a Hallmark Hall of Fame kind of yeah. deal. It wasn't, uh, I mean, I don't know what, what I was, uh, what I would have been expecting, but you know, with all the, with all the, and I don't, I don't remember it getting into a lot of, I mean, it talks about her life and the struggles as a woman uh, in this, you know, in this society um at the the time so it was it was an interesting perspective into that but i think it's interesting that with all the um the uh the theories and whatnot that you know you've obviously you've obviously uh followed this for a considerable amount of time this is obviously something you're very passionate about but the one uh theory that i don't think that someone's touched upon is aliens (laughs) 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 and Um, we're going there I think, you know, because uh, I think ancient astronomers right. could, no, I, got, I get, I get, I get no, angry just saying the words, just saying it, just saying it. <laughs> I'm on board, man. Yeah, I, I figure. I mean, uh, you're there with me. You're there with me. Mm-hmm. No, but um, so you're, you're of the opinion that she probably did try to, um, to land on this island. I am. I really do. I just don't think she would have ditched. Like, I don't, I mean, even if she ran out of gas, like I just, I feel like she wouldn't have let it get that dire. Like I know she was communicating that she was low on gas. So she knew that was coming, but I just don't think she would have not tried something. And it just kind of makes sense to me. And, and this, 
though the evidence is circumstantial, I'm like, there's just a lot of it. I mean, there's the mm -hmm. sh shoes, there's this freckled cream jar. And, you know, people are so quick to be like, she only cared about carrying gas. Why would she carry freckle cream? Well, because she knew photos were going to be taken of her when she landed. Like, it was going to be a big deal. And she was super self-conscious about her skin. So maybe she had freckle cream. Like, you know what I mean? It is 100% <laughs> circumstantial. But to me, I'm like, yeah, no, it, it's, it's just a lot of things stacked I've, up on top of I've each other. I've never heard of freckle cream. It was a thing in the, you know, 30s. Basically, it's just like lotion, but it supposed to minimize sunscreen would be what i would equate it to this this day right. and age something to protect right. your skin mm. from huh but they did they found a jar they found this jar that and it didn't of course have a label on it or anything but it was the same kind of jar that freckle cream was contained in in the 30s so they were like this could be this could be her it's like it could be i wish we knew for <laughs> sure <laughs> Just, right I need this DNA test to come back one way or the other because I need closure. I'm one of these people who I'm like, I just need to know. Well, why do you think it hasn't been? I mean, why do you think it has been so difficult for, because I mean, they found, they find, granted, you know, the Titanic was a much larger structure in order, you know, to find, it did take some time to find that. But why do you think that it, it is such still a, uh, an unsolved mystery? Yeah, I mean, I think it is because there's like, there just is nothing definitive. There's no closure. There's nothing saying for sure what happened. And that is so hard when people are, are studying people. It's like, you want to know what, what became of them. Their life had this meaning. And it's like, her life did have meaning. She crossed all these barriers, but then it just ended this way. And it's like, right. well, let's just, I don't know, find out. It's, yeah, it's, it's hard to say. I honestly can't even put to words why how, well why i'm not i'm not suggesting that maybe the 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 search was uh was not robust because she was a woman i'm not suggesting necessarily that because she was obviously uh very famous at the time or well, even today i guess but uh um it's just you know there's so many things that people like we will not rest until this is done and then but in hers it's kind of like yeah well we just don't know what happened and that's yeah. that's a very strange kind of uh dismissal i guess in some cases of, you know, especially someone that, you know, American citizen. But I guess also, I guess when you have someone that that happens to on towards the beginning of World War Two. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yep. <laughs> then I guess, you know, well, there's a lot of stuff happening in the Pacific. Yeah. During that time period. And right. maybe you know and with the amount of battles and um, who it's it would i guess it would be kind of like you know um someone shot in an alley and then the alley winds up getting carpet bombed by the germans i mean there's something <laughs> there's a lot of no i mean there's a lot of evidence that is that's done right and you know i guess because of conflicts that were happening and you know obviously the focus of trying to push the japanese back in uh, in that uh, theater um there i mean yeah there's a lot to, that can happen to evidence in that amount of time so well not to I mean, mention I, the, I just, yeah, not to mention the fact that you know the ocean pushes things right yeah and time and money i mean you know you can only spend i guess they officially declared her dead in january she disappeared in july and they sort of kept things open until january and then they officially were like she flew into the ocean and died and that's <laughs> it she's officially dead and it was like oh okay and i do think I do think an impending war had a lot to do with that because, you know, you've got to shift your focus and, and we as Americans are now 
worried about that and we're thinking about other things and you know so i think that's definitely played into that in some way for sure Mm-hmm. Sure, absolutely. And with the oceans pushing as much as they are, and with the Earth being flat as <laughs> it is, a lot of stuff can just wind up getting pushed off the edge. Right off the edge. Yep. Yeah. Jason it. Hatfield, everybody. Jason <laughs> Hatfield. <laughs> oh, boy. Oy vey. <laughs> well, this has been a good discussion. Yeah. Thank awesome. you. Thank you so much for asking I, uh, my thoughts. D- did not know uh, that much about uh, Amelia Earhart at all. Um, and this is, uh, yeah, this is, this is, I, I hope that these bones yield some, you know, something so yeah. that, you know, they can hopefully can be another uh, kind of add some closure. Uh, to that particular thing. But let me let me just ask you this real quick though. What if it turns out she was this person who would have moved back to New Jersey or something like that? What how how frustrated or how what, where would your head be if like that most unlikely scenario had taken place? I'm going to be so disappointed. I'm going to be <laughs> the whole movie in my mind will be shattered to bits. I will not be okay with that. That cannot be what happened. <laughs> it starts off kind of like Braveheart and then ends like Jerry Springer. It just yeah. it winds up being no. So yeah. kind of like Pearl Harbor. There will be real tears. There will be yeah. angry, angry tears. <laughs> Uh, that's that's kind of like the reverse of uh, some of the films depicting my family. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Where you have what happened in real life, but then what's depicted in the films, and then, you know, swap that out. Like that horrible 1970s one where they, Devil Ants and Rannell are walking off arm in arm like, oh, aren't we just going to be friends? And it's just kind of like, what the? What? No. Wait, you mean No, weren't? that's not what happened at all. They weren't? But... I think we had this discussion already. I was going to bring up the Diener Theater, but that's a bad idea, I think. I don't know where you live, but I know someone who has the ability to look you up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, this has been, yeah, this has been fascinating. And um, um, is uh, is there any other tidbits or things that you find like ultra fascinating about this situation that you think uh, maybe not many people know about that you want to kind of tease? I do. One thing that I hadn't talk about. It's like my favorite thing about this whole situation. It is this girl named Betty Ah, who uh, lived. Yes. The Betty story. She lived in Florida and she was like a, a radio enthusiast and her dad had gotten her this like radio and this like high powered antenna and she picked up transmissions and kept this um, diary, this notebook of what she heard and insists, the woman is like in her seventies now and, and she like insists that it, the woman said she was Amelia Earhart and talked about how she there could hear a man who sounded kind of delirious. She wrote in her notebook that he might've had a head injury because he kept trying to take the, the mic away, radio away from her to like talk and that he kept mm-hmm. trying to leave the plane and she kept saying, you have to stay. And um, she wrote it all down and, you know, 16 year old handwriting and in between transmissions when Amelia wouldn't transmit, she would like draw all these pictures. So her notebook's full of like, you know, girly teenage pictures in the middle of these transcriptions <laughs> of this message that she's hearing. Um, and she reported it to her father who came and heard as well. 
and he reported it and was told they were ships in the area. So like, thank you, but we've got that area covered because she was um, transmitting coordinates. And that I think is super fascinating to me mm-hmm. is that this, there, here's this kid, right? And how many times do we always, you know, you hear these stories of kids basically discredited and then you look at this journal and it's got all the girly pictures in it and they're just like, oh, this is some teenager who knows that Amelia Earhart's missing and she's making this up in her mind and she's hearing whatever she's hearing and just, you know, whatever and kind of, you know, half discredited. But, um, but Tiger has a copy of the book, of the notebook, and they have it all up online and you can read the actual transcripts that she's written along with what this 70 year old woman now as a grown woman remembers of that moment, which I thought was kind of interesting. So. Yeah. Reading her hmm. notebooks is fascinating. Fascinating yeah. to see the little, um, what they believe might this might have meant um mm-hmm. what was happening yeah it's just it's and it's like you said earlier it's so easy to fall into that rabbit hole and be looking at stuff for the next 11 hours mm-hmm. if you allow yourself oh yeah. absolutely mm-hmm. absolutely well this has been uh this has been fun honestly this is a topic mm-hmm. that i went down the rabbit hole a few years ago and uh <laughs> It was fun to revisit it. So uh, good, good deal. Thank you you for bringing up the topic. Well, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a great pleasure to talk with you all. And I am a huge fan and will continue to listen. So keep up the good work, y'all. And I apologize if I may scare somebody who's going to be doing a one-person show. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate that. Kate, you're wonderful. It's going to be great. (laughs) Kate, don't listen to me. What do I know? What do I know? Right? Exactly. Here I am. I'm doing a podcast in my closet. Take that into consideration. <laughs> yeah, but hey, Jason you, Hatfield, you, you're still on Wikipedia. Oh. Yes. Sure Needed that one. Well, um, thank you so much again, uh, Mary Angela. It's good talking to you again for the first time in uh, however many years it's been. Probably at least a good 15 years, maybe. Easily. Maybe. Yeah. So, um, but um, it's been great talking to you, uh, good catching up, and thanks for being a guest. Yeah, thank you. Anytime y'all are in Philly, I, I can happy to show you around. I think cool. we're going to be making a, a trip up that way before too long, me and my wife. Thank I think you. we'll try and do the New York and Philly, Philly thing, so we'll, uh, we'll look at when we get there. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks, gentlemen. Have a good evening. You All right. Well. Thank you. <laughs> and on behalf of our guest... Uh, I want to thank her once more. Uh, you have been listening to the History Bros podcast, History Bros podcast, uh, along with my smooth, fi- yeah, with my very good, smooth, with my good friend NASCAR, <laughs> also known as Jason Hatfield, and Dirty. Uh, that would be uh, Brian Geldmacher. I am Jason Rude signing off. Have a good one, everybody. We'll talk to you later. Yep. Peace out. Deuces. <laughs>